The year 2020. Civilization has fallen. Disease and tragedy have swept the world into a constant roll of madness. Then, two men stood in defiance of this to produce a podcast where they discussed two films every week. Their opinions were their own, and children were not permitted to listen, while they provided brief amusements. Their social lives were destroyed in the process, and they became creatures of the night. Unholy things. Two dudes. <laughs> Yonku! Welcome, welcome everyone to Two Dudes, One Double Feature, the show in which two dudes talk to two films, and that is about it. I am Dude One, Richard. And I'm Dude Two, Joe. And welcome everyone to part four of our five episode October Halloween series of double feature horror. We're doing something fun this month, so... (laughs) Hopefully you're enjoying it. And um, this is also, what, episode 19? We're almost at the end of season two already. I am in disbelief that we've made it this far. I made a short film called Disbelief. But that's not relevant. (laughs) Can we talk about it as a a double feature? Episode 20, Disbelief paired with um, Insignificant from uh, Nicholas Rogue. (laughs) I'm sorry. I can work with that. <laughs> I can be compared to him. That's fine. <laughs> I'll work with that. Oh, man. But uh, before we get into our proceedings today, of course, I must ask, how art thou, dude, too? Uh, just fine. Just, uh, just, just fine. I haven't been watching that many spooky movies outside of outside of what we've been talking about on the show. I think after this recording, I'm going to watch football, but also have another TV set up where I'll be watching some Universal Monster movies. I was like, can I just mention that I love the fact that you have, like, literally you have your main TV, and then you have a little TV right next to it. Do you have a third TV set up, or do you bring that down sometimes? Well, so my my way my setup is, like, there's the main TV, and then I have my 32-inch TV that I've had for this year it'll be like 12 years and it still works it works beautifully it's it still looks good so i'll bring that up and it's manageable to carry around the house so sometimes we bring it outside to watch stuff and when it's nice um but lately i've been you know hooking up a fire stick to it or a roku and just watching the you know football on there i just i love the i, <laughs> I love that you like you're a man of the future man if you got a, if you had a tv set up in your bathroom that, you know, you would never leave. I would never leave my bathroom if there was a TV in there. I'd just be like, yeah, I'll just go for it. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. I'm watching my stories. Go use the other bathroom. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and at that point, everybody, uh, people, will, what, the, the outhouse business will, will would start booming at that point because everybody would need uh, spare, spare restrooms. It's like, uh, could, is there toilet paper in here and possibly an extension cord? Maybe some Wi-Fi? Please. 
I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna miss uh, Days of Our Lives. Come on. <laughs> Going off of that, I was rewatching Jurassic Park and Jurassic World. My brother was was uh, was trying to rewatch some of those movies. We skipped around some some of uh, Jurassic World because there's a lot of it that's just really boring. I understand that. Outside of like a few sequences that are like kind of like pretty cool, a lot of it is just very bland and I, I find forgettable. So I think I've come to the conclusion that it's probably my least favorite Jurassic Park movie is Jurassic World. I mean, I would say. I would say it's probably, I would say it's probably that. Then again, like, the sequel, the nature of sequels to Jurassic Park to begin with is kind of like, especially when the first movie basically says don't, like, in, in its own way, like, it doesn't outright say it, but like, like metaphorically, it's like, don't make sequels. Mm-hmm. And yet, because it was a massive success, they're like, we gotta make sequels, and yet, the whole point of the sequel, to begin with, is to... Uh, go against what you know Ian Malcolm and Alan Grant and all those cats were saying about like listen don't do Jurassic Park it's stupid it's dangerous um you think you can control it in science you can't chaos theory baby so but I will say the one that I I I, I think I like a little bit uh and a lot of it I contribute to the director is the the more recent one even though it's not great by any means, but when it like turns on to a full-on horror film in Fallen Kingdom, like a slasher haunted house movie, I'm like, I'm into it now. <laughs> okay, it's at least it's at least interesting and entertaining in a lot of places, which is more than I can say for Jurassic World. Um, and then of course rewatching Jurassic Park, I don't need to say much about it. It's just one of the greatest movies ever made uh it, it still holds up incredibly well it's so good you know and i just like I, I like seeing big budget movies like that where of course we we all love jeff goldblum and sam neill lord dern and you know richard attenborough now and all that but they're not none of those people are major movie stars you know and i think that was one of the the strengths of that movie was that it wasn't like they just had like a tom cruise or robert downey jr step in as those characters they had really good actors play those characters. And that's why a lot, even despite the fact that some of the effects have aged over the last almost 30 years, uh, a lot of it still works because they're all so good. They're also good. And also just the use of lighting and the use of, um, that's the, like, cause I was thinking about this the other day, um, because obviously it's that spooky time of year and you know, what still kind of has like, age but sort of like really well used and uh there's my dog again <laughs> oh my gosh they're probably taking her out right now but um uh the uh special effects uh in casper actually hold up pretty well like just because of the you were saying this to yeah me. just because of the way like the the lighting and the way um, that they utilize that. Plus, like, Casper, from what I know, is, isn't he, like, the first full, like, character, like, CG character in a, in a, like, a live-action movie? Like, isn't he one of the first? Yeah, no, I was reading, yeah, I'm reading this now, sorry, I had to Google it, but, yeah, it was the, uh, it was the first feature film to have a fully CG character in the lead role. So, yeah, you're, you're absolutely, uh, you're, you're right there. And it, and you know what? It's still like, especially compared to a lot of CG these days, like it, it still holds up. 
honestly. Like, it might not be the greatest CGI, but again, the use of lighting and the way that they frame it works really well. I'm actually glad you brought up that example because, you know, a lot of people when they talk about CG, they of course talk about Jurassic Park, talk about Terminator 2, Mm -hmm. and uh, one of the other ones, even a little bit more obscure, but still important, is like, uh, was it Young Sherlock Holmes? I believe that was like one of the first to sort of implement um, like a C, like a CG creature or, or something. Okay. Uh, with like the stained glass um, night, if I'm not mistaken. But yeah, all very important. Um, and that's actually going to connect sort of uh, later on with one of our films. Uh, so I wanted to talk about this today because, again, you know, for those of you who are listening to this in the far off future, uh, as Richard and I are recording this. Uh, October 18th, where we record these things. Yes, we record them in advance. Sorry. Uh, We are still in the pandemic. Yes. Sorry. Sorry to spoil the illusion. We're still in the pandemic. Yes, we are. And, you know, one of the big things is the the movie theaters, okay? Like, we have AMC saying they're going to run out of cash by the... They could run out of cash by the end of the year. You know, uh, we were talked about Regal's um, doors were shutting uh, temporarily again, Um, you know... And I'm sure Cinemark has other, other, other issues. They don't say you know. anything. <laughs> they, admittedly, like Cinemark, they don't say like, anything. Yeah. They don't. They just they hold they hold in their pain. It's it's rather unhealthy. Actually, <laughs> they're the, they're but, the conservative movie theater chain. Like, no, we're fine. We're fine. <laughs> we're fine. But I'm hurting. I'm hurting. <laughs> I'm fine. Oh. <laughs> uh, but in all seriousness, if you need help, seek it out. But yes, movie theaters, they really need help. You know, the most major release to come out, the, the most re- major release I can think of recently are Tenet, and then that was dethroned by The War with Grandpa, with Robert De Niro, you know. And theaters are not doing great because they have they have very, very slim offerings. New York City, New York has been the, the center for a lot of this conversation because it's one of the states where the theaters haven't reopened on the whole just yet. You know, other places have started reopening. You know, like I said, New Jersey opened. I know Ohio's been open for a bit. They've decided in New York that theaters that are outside of New York City, theaters that are outside of New York City can reopen at 25% capacity with no more than 50 people in front of each movie screen. And theaters in certain counties outside of New York do not meet state requirements and cannot reopen. The, but basically, the statewide positivity rate there is 1.1% according to the New uh, the governor website. And in areas that are outside of the red zones for New York, the positivity rate is 1.02%. And I think as long as they stay in some areas, like they stay beneath 2%, they'll be allowed to reopen. And that starts October 23rd. That's interesting. Especially because, you know... You know, we just had that article not that long ago where they're literally begging and pleading and almost being furious with Cuomo because of him not opening anything. And I'm not saying I don't I wouldn't say this is him like buckling under pressure because that's because that has happened lately with a lot of governors and a lot of people uh, working with the governors and and trying to handle their states stuff with the coronavirus. I know that happened in Ohio with Mike DeWine. You know, he's had a lot of people uh going on uh like the like the the house or whatever and uh you know protesting 
you know, the fact that things were shut down when they were. Amy Atkin, who was doing really well at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, quit because she was being sued by restaurants and there was a lot of pressure on her, which is incredibly unfortunate. And all she was trying to do was help people, everybody, especially because Ohio's doing really bad right now. <laughs> Sorry, just frustrated on that. <laughs> Childishly... Cha childishly frustrated but i'm frustrated anyway i mean it's frustrating over here too because in some areas new jersey it's it's getting worse yeah and we we just don't know you know you, you just don't know so folks um obviously stay stay safe out there if you are in new york and you are planning to go to movie theaters plan accordingly wear a mask and if you if you can avoid i, I know like a lot of the movie theaters rely on concessions and all that but try as best as you can not to eat concessions at a movie theater because it is expensive. And, you know, take you're gonna have to take off your mask when you're eating stuff. I hate I, I hate to I hate to admit it, but it's it's true. Like it just when if you're going to see a movie, be weary of how you're doing it. Actually prepare, be smart about it, because you know, you don't you don't wanna Put yourself or your loved ones or even anyone else that you're around in danger. So, but going back to the the movie theater opening Cuomo situation, um, it still sounds like like I was saying like he hasn't necessarily buckled under the pressure because it sounds like he's he's allowing them to open, but he's still being very firm on how the approach is happening. I actually was I was reading this because I, I was very because I, I, I had seen like the articles online that were talking about this and all that and I was very very cautious about it but I think um, I think it with the parameters of obviously New York City is not nowhere near ready to yeah. reopen movie theaters so having it like having it done like this I think makes sense and I hope maybe this can be a model for 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 other places even though you know like I said a lot of places do have movie theaters open and oh but we're going back to like supporting movie theaters like if you're somebody who's not comfortable going to a movie theater yet and you want to support your movie theater my suggestion is get a gift card buy a gift card to your local movie theater as sort of like an i like an iou type of deal um i actually did that with the film forum in new york city speaking of movie theaters in new york film Thor forum is like an independent theater that you know i've saw i saw king kong on the big screen there i saw um you know the four feathers and they screen a lot of a lot of good stuff there you know uh 35 millimeter prints and whatnot and i was supposed to see a couple things this year but that didn't turn out so i opted to take what my, my value of my tickets and make them gift cards that or also buying concessions to go so like there's there's theaters that offer to go options for people and honestly the the concessions is what pays for the employees you know that's what they're that's what most of their paycheck comes from is if not all their paycheck i believe uh from the concessions so like i know at my theater they offer like a large bag of popcorn and people love that movie theater popcorn you know, uh, it's like basically a large bag of like three large popcorns and you can just take it home and enjoy it. So um, if you're not feeling comfortable, but you still want to support, that's another great way to do that, and especially for the people that are working there right now. So that would be very supportive of them. Thank you for honestly, thank you for bringing that up. That that is um, that is fantastic. Definitely take those uh, suggestions, folks, you know, and again, with all this stuff, plan accordingly, stay safe, social distance. You've all you've heard it before, but 
it bears, you know, you just got to repeat it. So yes, I, I'm done with talking about the pandemic for today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's 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 all kinds of nonsense. So let's uh, let's get right into our our double features. Now we've talked witches, we've talked ghosts, we've talked twins, d- d- uh, d- clones, doppelgangers. doppelgangers. We've talked about that, and now we're on to another classic example of horror movie monster and that is of course the vampire and specifically the most famous of vampires who's had many adaptations and many different interpretations our our man dracula and with our first film we are talking about the 1958 hammer horror film horror of dracula or as it's known simply in the uk dracula I'm just going to refer to it as Horror of Dracula because... We're awful Americans. We're, Amer- <laughs> we're American and because when you... As somebody, as I've stated many times, I'm a huge Universal Monsters fan. And when you say Dracula to me, just straight up Dracula without anything else, the first thing I think of is Bela Lugosi, you know, with his eyes glowing in some scenes and, and looking really creepy. Mm-hmm. So calling this Horror of Dracula is actually... I'm actually glad that we have that alternate title to fall back on. Because just to say, Hammer's Dracula, Hammer's Dracula, Hammer's Dracula, uh, yeah. Yeah. But I figured for people that are, if, if, if we have any uh, any listeners who live in the UK, you know, being nice to them as well. It's Dracula for you guys. You know that. Lucky. <laughs> <laughs> no, but horror, horror of Dracula, as it's, as it's known for us, um, is... Like I said, it's a 1958 film directed by Terrence Fisher, starring the great Peter Cushing, and while unknown more or less at the time, but has, uh, especially for us because of his uh, work in like Lord of the Rings and Star Wars, the great Mr. Peter, or the great Mr. Uh, Christopher Lee as uh, the title character of Dracula and directed by Terrence Fisher. This was... This was one of two movies that really, truly defined not just, like, horror films, but Dracula and vampire films as well. And so, I'm actually really excited to talk about this one. Yeah, so, you know, as you said, you got Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee in this one. And both of them have been in in Star Wars in some capacity, which is also quite amusing and one of my one of my initial things with this movie is obviously as somebody who's watched the the todd browning 1931 version with lugosi a billion and a half times it is interesting how this one like changes things up as far as an adaptation is concerned and that's a that's a thing throughout all draculas like there, there's i was watching a james rolf video talking about all the different dracula adaptations and there's some that like tried it. They, they, they're closer to the source material than others, but you know, it's darn near impossible to get something that's exactly there, mm-hmm. but I didn't mi- necessarily mind the changes that were presented here. Like John, like Harker come, comes in the movie er- early on, you know, as you do ooh, usually with these Dracula adaptations sometimes, but he comes in as the librarian and then you're like, Oh my goodness, he's a vampire hunter or something. What, what is going on? Who? <laughs> They they jump right into it with this because uh, I mean the movie I mean it's only like what 80, 82 minutes long and they're working on like pennies and dimes as far as their budget so they're just like you know what let's just streamline this let's just 
you know, make it simpler. Plus, um, I was I was reading up about this. I don't know if this is the same for Dracula, but when they were doing Frankenstein, there was there was pretty much like a, a glooming shadow over their head from Universal because if they did anything that was in any way similar to their Frankenstein, sued. I do remember hearing something about that. Yeah, that does sound that does sound familiar. And it's one of those weird things where they are like these are like public domain characters, but at the same time there are definitive versions of those characters that are owned by studios. It's like Disney. It's like it's like Universal monsters are like the Disney, you know, of horror movies where Disney like a lot of the fairy tales are like public domain, but then Disney has like double copyright with like the animated versions that whatever live action <laughs> version you get afterwards. <laughs> Literally, like I'm just I'm like it's Snow White. Are you? What's she look like? What's going on? Is that some? Is that something you really want to do? Think about this for a second, because I got a contract. I got paperwork. Listen, listen. Either six dwarves or eight. You could even have six and a half, but that's just weird. Maybe you can make an allusion to the fact that one of the seven is gone, but you cannot at any point in the story have seven dwarves running around. No, but. Yeah, a lot of adaptation changes in this one. And even stuff with like um like like Lucy and Mina, you know, the way they're used. Yeah, they're switched up. Lucy's actually Jonathan Harker's fiance, and Mina is Arthur Holmwood's wife in this one. It's just a I guess just a change that they that they did for that. And Van Helsing, I think, has more of a presence in the movie because it's like we have the stuff with Jonathan Harker and what happens with him, and then Van Helsing shows up. It almost like they they kind of build the rivalry a, a little bit more from the original interpretations to this movie by just having him having Peter Cushing, who at that point was more of a more of a star power than Christopher Lee, have him kind of be like the focus as far as like the rest of the movie when he shows up. He even has like a cool lead in shot, like like when he walks in, you don't even see his face. Then then he just turns around, and you're like. My God, Peter Cushing. Yeah, that was really good. But going off of that, you know, in a lot of adaptations of, of Dracula, like, of course, Van Helsing is a major component of the story. I mean, to the point where there's a movie called Van Helsing and there's a, a manga series inv involving ba vampires and things called Helsing. But with this one, yeah, I definitely felt that Van Helsing was much more of a major presence than in other in other adaptations. I mean, for one, because Peter Cushing, if I'm not mistaken, was top billed. Yeah in this in this movie cuz you were saying like he was he was the bigger bigger quote unquote draw at that point but also just too with the way the story is like you don't get i was surprised at how little i saw dracula in this movie yeah he he shows up at the beginning of it but then again it becomes after that becomes peter cushing's movie and so in a lot of ways i feel like Christopher Lee's reputation when it comes to Dracula was built up through the sequels more than it was in that just just in that first movie. Because fun fact, I don't know if you know this, but when he shows up again in the second film, he does not have a line of dialogue. Really, he's he's just like a looming presence, and anytime he shows up, you're like it's almost like kind of still very like creepy and effective, even though he doesn't say a thing. Mm -hmm. And so it's just it's interesting that. You go from this first movie where he is more like a dreading, looming presence with uh, with a handful of lines of dialogue, and then ultimately, you know, the movie shifts focus to Peter Cushing to the second film where it's pretty much just him, and he doesn't say a word, but it's still 
it's still pretty scary, honestly. Just imagine, like, Saruman or Count Dooku just standing He's there. He's standing there menacingly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh man. But Get out of there, Van Helsing! But actually, that's one of the... <laughs> One of the things I want to talk about with this Dracula is, again, we're going to be talking about other versions of Dracula in this. That's just that's just how it is. It's Dracula, but Lugosi there there is like a, almost like a like a, a foreign like charm to to Lugosi's Dracula. Like I almost I almost feel like if he had lived, um, Rudolph Valentino could have been a great candidate for Dracula mm-hmm. because I feel like some of the mannerisms, the way that you know the way he was and all that, I feel like that could have worked out in a movie, and you know. Well, there, there's no like overtly sexual things that happen in the in the classic, you know, 1931 Dracula. Whereas this is a is a little more out there with that kind of stuff. The crazy thing about just talking about Hammer specifically is that they're just an incredibly influential studio in general. We'll probably talk more about it in a little bit, but just talking about the the portrayal of Dracula, like first and foremost, a lot of these films were about pushing the nature of, you know, uh, what uh, traumatize what traumatizes and badly influences children in the eyes of parents, sex and violence, because that's all it is. It's sex and violence. Mm. You what we watch it now um, with our modern sensibilities, and you think about it and you go, "Well, that's not that sexual. There's there's not that violent. You know, there's there's, there's blood, there's cleavage, but other than that, you know, there's." Christopher Lee, like, looming in, in people... I say looming a lot, but it's true. There's Christopher Lee, like, lurking in bedrooms, just with his, like, six-foot-tall, like, scary, but somewhat, like... You know, there's that whole bit when he's, like, put his... He puts his face right up against Lucy's face. Like, not not kissing her, but, like, almost, like, sexual... Like, almost very sensually, like, Eskimo kissing her, and then goes in right for the bite on her neck, and you're just like... They actually wanted to get rid of that in the censors. They're just like, we don't want that. That's too much. Because that's that was the big thing. At that time, it was unfounded. You know, the fact that there was so much blood, and it was as sensual as it was, was shocking for modern audiences. The coffin, that it says Dracula on it, which we kind of both kind of giggled at, because it's like, oh, he labels it. Cool. He, at least he knows it's his. <laughs> but, um... <laughs> it's important. It's important, because he's like, oh, crap, which one's mine? When the blood, that very, um, theatrical, like, bright, vibrant, beautiful, uh, hammer horror blood... Uh, falls onto the logo like that was something that shocked people at that time they were they were literally like what part of why uh it is a lot more i guess sensual is because they were they were really pushing for that in this version which obviously uh later versions would very much capitalize on and we'll probably talk more about that very later but you know, Hammer presented something with this version of Dracula that was very unprecedented and shocking at the time, and would later influence a lot of a lot of uh, horror films to kind of approach it that same way. It's like all a matter of like like building blocks. You know, like thirty one, like the you know Nosferatu was definitely real scary for audiences back in nineteen twenty two, and then nineteen thirty one's Dracula. I mean, like that that's it, that literally launched. That launched every that changed everything, and then of course you know with it with this film with, with its portrayal of uh, of sex and violence. One of the things I wanted to talk about though, and this is the big thing. This is like 
the if you take anything away from this episode, this episode's about costumes. Okay, <laughs> the costumes, the costumes for especially Peter Cushing are incredible. Um, like, yeah. oh my god! Listen, okay. Another thing that I think we need to preface as well is that when Curse of Frankenstein came out for Hammer, it was their first color movie, and when they have that Technicolor technology, like anybody, they're like, let's use it. Let's really go for it. When people think of gothic horror, they don't think of, like, lavish colors. They don't think of, like, you know, like, when they look at the, the, the outfits that, you know, Van Helsing or Dracula are wearing, they might not necessarily think, maybe it's blue, or maybe it's green. But you look at, you look at uh, these movies, and they're so colorful. And it's almost, you it's almost like, like my favorite thing besides the costumes is the fact the movies are so colorful. And when it comes to the costumes, they are very much that. Peter Cushing has this beautiful almost velvet like like blue jacket with this huge like f- like fur collar that he wears throughout the movie or his really great um blue like what do they call those like like the cape that's like the short cape over the shoulder kind of coat or whatever i know what you're talking about like the, is that the paddington one yes. that i thought like i thought he just needed a red hat <laughs> yes. like paddington <laughs> <laughs> oh man just the 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 co- the color and the costumes in this one is especially like you said especially with peter cushing are just out amazing i hope he got to keep all of those costumes because I would be so mad if he didn't. That that would be nice. And the other costume I, I have to note too is Christopher Lee's cape. It was just like it felt like any time that cape was moving or doing anything, it felt like it had a purpose. Except for maybe when he's going on one of his rampages against like one of his bride at the beginning or whatever. But like when he's walking away, and I see the rest of the set, and I'm like, clearly they don't have a lot of money. But like that cape, they spent everything in this shot the whole budget of that shot is on that cape and it just looks perfect it's like like no wonder he, he became like a star wars villain it's just like wow like that cape action though listen dr strange should take note <laughs> cg cape cool fine but if you want an actor to really make that cape come to life look no further there you go there you have it you don't need you don't need the, the computer you don't you can you can save a couple bucks oh my god no and it, like there's uh that great uh shot when he's like walking away and you just see it flowing oh it's so it's so good it's it literally is it literally is a character i'm surprised it didn't get any kind of recognition in the credits cape played by cape it, it's like it's like in uh the original king kong where they where they have like king kong as himself mm-hmm. uh they should have had like the cape you know, like similar credit. Cape as himself, or or uh, cape played by cloak, <laughs> or you know, uh, just add a little mystery to it, like Frankenstein or Bride of Frankenstein, where when they first credit the monster or the monster's bride, they just have the question marks. Yes, <laughs> cape played by question mark. One thing I'm going to say here is I'm shocked it took us. Let's see, how far are we into this episode? Um, we are uh, about 37 minutes in. It's going to change when you guys listen to this. But we're like 37 minutes in, and we haven't talked about Alfred. Alfred is in this movie. No, oh my god. So, listen. When we talk about Hammer stars, or just horror stars from like the 50s and 60s, you talk about, um, in the States, we had Vincent Price. In the UK, obviously, they have Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. But if there's one Hammer star who's been in a few Hammer films himself, who would go on to play one of my one of my favorite personal like favorite characters 
in comic books and in comic book movies, we have Michael Goff as Arthur Holmwood, or as we know him, Alfred Pennyworth in the in the '90s Batman movies. The one great consistent element in all four '90s Batman movies, Michael Goff. Nothing against Pat Hingle, who played Commissioner Gordon in all those movies, but Michael Goff, though. <laughs> You beautiful, you beautiful soul you were. Oh, for sure. I mean, and actually, you know what? Usually, usually when it comes to like the, like the other supporting characters and like, like Dracula, when I watch the original Dracula and I see like the young romantic lead, I forget who the actor was, but yeah, I don't know. he always just came off as like a wet noodle to me and I was always <laughs> so annoyed whenever he was on screen and it was just, it's just like the, mo- the most bland. I mean, he was also, I think he was better in, in the mummy. Because he also plays basically the same character in the Mummy, but you know, it, it, it was nice that this guy actually had some like agency. I know people talk about that, like female characters having agency, but sometimes there are like useless like men in these movies that do nothing. Yes, and and Arthur Arthur, I feel like does something. Even you know, even if he has to be like the the sidekick to Peter Cushing. It's still more than oh, was David Manners. I think is the dude's name. David Manners does diddly squat in the 1931 <laughs> Dracula <laughs> as like the young as the young lead. You know, whatever, man. I mean, it's what's ugh. what's funny is like when you watch when you watch Horror of Dracula, knowing that Peter Cushing would become like a Sherlock Holmes later, it almost feels like a Holmes Watson relationship. So like, I'm kind of bummed that Michael Goff didn't play. Um, Watson in those movies that would have been that would have been really good casting also folks like I am aware David Manders or whatever played Jonathan Harker but he still basically serves the same function he's the young you know he's the more I guess the more romantic lead that isn't you know the blood-sucking monster yes but Michael you know like he he, my point stands he he, (laughs) it does it very much does um but no he uh but Michael Goff he very much has that like sense of of urgency but also like you can see like uh his emotion and being like heartbroken with what happened with uh lucy who's his sister in this adaptation and so it feels like he has more of a personal aim when it comes to the story that he wants to save his sister who was turned into a a vampire so it gives him more of a drive and more of a purpose and then he and then he teams up with peter cushing um who again again great team up I love this team up so much, uh, and I'm sad that it was only just for this movie. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree with you. I'm, I'm, I'm with you there. But you know, he did have a great team up later on, of course, with Michael Keaton and Val Kilmer and George Clooney. Yeah, but Michael Keaton for sure. <laughs> you like kind of trailed off there mm. <laughs> no reason no reason no reason uh yeah i'm not doing anything anyway so if you don't mind i want to talk a little bit about um hammer specifically because i don't get that option um a lot and i have it now so <laughs> like hammer hammer horror films like i don't think people truly realize how influential and important i think this film series or this film studio really is because when they when they first started off it was with the intention of kind of bringing back because science fiction at that time had more or less killed horror you know there wasn't really, like, gothic horror films like, you know, the Universal Monster movies. You know, we had more movies like The Blob was kind of the was kind of the standard at that point in time. 
Um, not to, you know, lessen the value of the blob, but it's just an example. Hammer comes in, uh, low budget, Bray Studios uh, is their location, and they're like, let's let's try to bring this back with uh, modern sensibilities. So they incorporated color into their films. They incorporated, at that time, excessive violence and uh, sensuality and sexuality that was unprecedented. And it was it was honestly, like, you can almost argue, and I think Mark Gatiss said this really well in his BBC special, but um, there's a scene in Curse of Frankenstein when Christopher Lee, who plays the monster, gets shot in the eye, and he just tilts his head back, and his hand is... Uh, leaking blood through the through uh, his fingers. Um, you can almost argue is that moment is what's changed things, and especially for Hammer because at that point they hadn't re- they hadn't really tackled horror films, and they also changed Terrence Fisher, who essentially the John Favreau of Hammer horror, or and then of course Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee, who would become horror icons, and their work would in turn influence people like Mario Bava and Dario Argento to do um, movies like Black Sunday or Suspiria or any of the more like Italian uh, New Wave type horror. Um, and then, of course, you were watching the Vincent Price, Roger Corman films uh, based on all the Edgar Allan Poe stories, which, while not as violent as Hammer was, or at least at the time, they were more like surreal. Like there was a lot more like a like a dream like quality to them. Yeah, it's a, it's certainly a different experience versus say the univer- the regular Universal Monsters yeah. stable of things because that movie was in color and I would say there are much more there are some pretty horrific things that do occur uh in that movie. Also just a side note, that movie feels a little more relevant uh considering recent events. I don't know if I mentioned that in a recent episode. That's all I want to say moving <laughs> on from that. I mean, you're not you're not wrong and it's worth mentioning. But um you know, these were these were things that even later on you can look at just the fact that the image of Christopher Lee as Dracula, because um, while Bela Lugosi, as far as like his performance, I think is kind of the standard most people look towards when they look at performing Dracula, like with that accent that he has and everything. But then, like the more ferocity and you know the more predator nature of Christopher Lee, like the, the fangs, the blood on the fangs, because Bela Lugosi didn't have fangs, if I remember correctly. No, he did not. And he didn't, he played Dracula many times on stage and one other time in uh, Abbott Castell Me Frankenstein, but I don't recall, I don't, yeah, I don't think there were fangs in Abbott Castell Me Frankenstein. I think Hammer probably really, you know. They popularized it. Popularized it for sure. And then like, even just like the red eyes, like that image of Christopher Lee with the, the bloody fangs and the red eyes, just that intensity with the color lights behind him. You know, just the pure like veracity and uh, you know, like intense nature of that of that image um, would be a massive influence on later versions of Dracula. And the the downside the downside though, unfortunately, of the influence of Hammer is that now there's this there's competition, <laughs> there's great competition, and Hammer's like, oh god. <laughs> Oh god, we we gotta we gotta do this. We gotta like oh my god, people are driving put more boobs in it. Show them this time. Like like it was getting like to a point where they were like there was people that were just refusing to like make 
movies with them anymore because it just wasn't what it used to be you know it wasn't this like low budget like quick pace like creative sense of filmmaking that was about like violent sex and on and you know just all that stuff when it came to heart when it came to hammer because eventually because um closer to like the late 60s 70s it just was like show boobs we need money <laughs> and <laughs> the, t- the tagline for uh <laughs> it's the tagline for for later hammer uh dracula's bedroom in theaters now. <laughs> it's just it's it's just unfortunate that you know the studio got to that point where the influences they made were also like their detriment and you know their desperation to try and like revive things um speaking of that thankfully though in like 2011 they did have a revival and they've been making movies every now and then so they're still like hammers back it's and they're making like more low budget movies they're not like huge productions or anything but you know they've had a few stars i mean like um matt reeves did let me in uh with chloe grace moretz and cody smith mcphee um you know matt reeves who's doing the new batman movie and of course did the planet of the apes movies which we love uh you know he was kind of like at least in america he was like the guy that ushered a hammer horror back for us in the states and then uh daniel radcliffe was in one of the movies uh olivia cook who's uh been having a pretty good career and she's in ready player one there you go uh and uh sam uh uh claffin or calfin or whatever his name is who's been uh he's played a lot of jerks in movies but like the the hammer horror film he did with jared harris and olivia cook he's actually like a good dude so (laughs) it's a nice change of pace for him as a performer um no they've worked with uh they worked with some 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 good actors richard armitage even recently in the the main kid from uh the it movies that plays bill or whatever was in it so i'm happy that they're back it's just uh it's it's a interesting story how they started and where they went essentially it certainly is and i was definitely you know hammer itself is an interesting you know case study interesting story and of course this is a very good movie with some iconic performances iconic imagery and some dope ass costumes those costumes though fam i kind of want a like a blue velvet like faux i don't want to i don't want real fur but like a big fur collar with like a hat that'd be cool in that case uh we are going to step out for a bit and get ourselves some blue jackets any way we can. Uh, we're going to take a quick, 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 quick intermission and return with our next film. But before we come back, we would like to introduce part four of Two Dudes, One Bad Night. Okay. <clears throat> we're getting closer to town now. Come on, Richard. Stay up. Mm-hmm. Stay up. You're losing a lot of blood. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe if I turn the radio on. <laughs> in KTXC, and it's open line Friday here at the studio, and we've got a caller on the line. Hello, you're on open line Friday. What song can I spin for you tonight? Uh, hi, this is Officer John over at Booker Hall General Hospital. I'm supposed to be on duty, but uh, I just called in to ask if you could play Girlfriend for Christmas by Tex Ritter and the Buttersweets. Ooh, bad choice. Tex Ritter and the Buttersweets coming in hot to soothe their jangled nerves with girlfriend for Christmas. Huh. This song kind of rules. Oh, God. What is this? What? 
this, you know what? This is worse than losing blood. This is so much worse than losing blood. Man, you're such a square. Turn, turn off. Turn off. Ah. Oh, my leg. Yo. On second thought, maybe just take the wheel. I'm starting to, I'm starting to fall asleep. No can do, man. My license expired literally two minutes ago. What? I'll keep you awake with this poem. That's not going to keep me awake. The sleepy time hours come once every day. The blooming blue flowers bloom once every May. That's a good rhyme, man. Although you may deny it, I think we can agree you're sleepy. So sleepy. So you must look out for that tree! Richard! Buddy! Can you hear me? What? Hugh Jackman? Wow, man. Where am I? Mine hell? Nope. But you might as well be. You're handcuffed to a bed at the hospital. What? What are you talking? Why am I handcuffed? Are, are you eating chicken nuggets? Well, after we crashed, I carried you like five miles to the hospital. I guess the doctor thought that was suspicious, so he called the cops. Good. That's why we're in handcuffs. And yes, these are chicken nuggets. Detective Allison got him for me. Joey, you you know Detective Allison is dead, right? We saw her body, and a ghost appeared. It's it, that's not possible. That's what I said. Turns out Allison is a pretty common name. Oh man, look. Old man Slim Whittles is demonstrating how to whittle a duck call. Who in the hay is Slim Whittles? He's a local whittling legend. He has a show on PBS. I've been watching his show for three hours straight. Three hours? That's enough time for Beaver to figure out where we went. We gotta get out of here now. I don't want to be handcuffed anymore. What? Where is this detective whatever? Well, look who's finally awake. Um, hi. Glad to see you made it, son. You came awful close to meeting Steve Irwin tonight. Steve Irwin? My name is Detective Allison. Sorry for the handcuffs, but I'm going to have to ask you a few questions. Just a few questions? Yeah, okay, fine. That's fine. A few questions? I can answer that. What happened to your leg? <laughs> Listen, tonight's been awful, okay? There was, there, was, there was a clown, and there was a bunch of dead people... And then the, the Ferris wheel was locked, and he, they didn't have any deep fried butter. And he was saying Dr. Seuss poems, and they chopped my leg off. With a chainsaw? Yeah. Well, it sounds like you met Christo, the chainsaw clown. You're lucky to be alive. Not many people meet up with that psycho killer and live to tell about it. Where's Christo now? He's dead. I shot him. Shot him 17 times, to be exact. Well, congratulations. Killing Christo, the unkillable clown, is almost as impossible as purchasing a house with no conservatory. What? Well, okay then. Next question. Was there a guy claiming to be Justin Bieber? Yes! He gave us a ride in a potato truck, and then he killed two police officers and chased us through the woods to the carnival. Christo said they were planning something for us before he died. Who is this Justin Bieber guy? Clearly he's not Bieber. His real name is Brian. It was a cold day in hell when Brian escaped the Idaho State Correctional Institution. I was a rookie detective, greener than the rotting corpses that we had to pull out of the mighty Idaho River once every other Tuesday and twice every fifth Sunday. 
<laughs> you rained down hell from on high over the entire tri-state area for a fortnight squared until I finally caught up with him. But that smile... Um... That dadgum smile. I married him the night I caught him. What?! A forbidden love. You married a serial killer?! Joey, turn that music off. How are you still a detective? How did it end up here? In Booger Hole, West Virginia. Brian and I were married for 10 hours, but people change. Brian grew distant as the hours passed. He slipped deeper into his obsession over a podcast he kept jabbering on and on about. I remember having to climb over bags of fan mail just to get to the billiard room. I ask you, how could I stay any longer with a monster like that? Judge Harvey had married us that night. Come morning, we were back in court fighting over the kids. Brian skipped town by lunchtime, and I resumed my chase. I've chased him here to Booger Hole, and it ends tonight. There were green bodies in the Idaho River? What about Christo? Brian's father. Hold up. Are you telling me the guy in the Idaho potato truck who pretended to be Justin Bieber is actually the son of the clown in the woods that cut my leg off? Yep. Look, I just want to go home. I have no leg. Are, are you done asking questions? You're free to go. I'm sorry about your leg. I think old man Slim Whittles is whittling you a replacement. In the meantime, I'll just get these handcuffs off you boys. Thanks, Detective Allison. You're getting a leg from Slim Whittles, Richard. Boy, I wish I got my leg lopped off today instead of you. You know, Joey, so do I. Some guys just have all the luck. Uh, Detective Allison? I'm here. Go ahead, Officer John. Uh, I got distracted while watching Slim Whittles whittling duck call on TV, and somebody got on the elevator while I wasn't looking. You're fired. Oh, man. Okay, boys, I better go take care of this. What about my handcuffs? She's gone. That duck call looks superb. I don't care about duck... No. It does look superb. What was that? Joey, lock the door now. Okay. But I told him not to. Well, you didn't tell him hard enough, did you? This is your fault. It all could have been so easy, but now look. You just made me kill my ex-wife and a few miscellaneous police officers, and now I have to kidnap and then kill you. Look, you have no idea what I had planned for you at the circus. I bet! Okay, it was going to be a big reveal. I was going to come out. Me and Dad had a song and dance number already. Wow, a whole song and dance number! Sounds lovely. 
It would have been lovely. Why are you making this so difficult? Okay, look, just give me your arm. I'm gonna hook you up. No, you will not. You're gonna go to Joey. Help! And when Joey, you wake, up, wake up! I'm gonna kill I was you. Handcuffed. And then we can all just forget this ever happened, okay? Slim Whittles? Is that you? Oh, what's left of it? Gee, I'm glad to see you, man. Finish whittling your friend's leg, but there ain't nobody in the room. I think my friend's been kidnapped. Well, if there's one thing I learned from my time studying guerrilla warfare back in Vietnam, it's that revenge is the dish best served with a side of cold steel. Cold steel? Oh, like a gun! What you need is a firearm, son. Do you know where I can get a gun? I can will you a gun. Will it shoot? Well, it will if you use your imagination. I need a gun that's not imaginary. Well, then the man you'll have to see is Magnum Pete, the gun dealer. Does he sell guns that aren't imaginary? Uh-huh. Magnum Pete comes by every Friday around this time. He deals firearms to the invalids in the hospital. I can take you to his van. It's in the parking deck. Thanks, Slim Whittles. Lead me to the purveya of artillery. Just through this here door. There you go, there's Pete's van showing up. Hello, fellas. Are you Magnum Pete? No, my name is Alex. Some folks are born with the wrong name, I guess. I would like to buy a side of cold steel, good sir. All right, here's a taste of what I've got. Here's a nice little gun. A Smith & Wesson 22 caliber handgun. Isn't that a honey of a gun? Pop a few caps in the air. Go on. Try it out. Shoots like butter! Glorious little gun. But maybe you want something a little bigger. Bigger's better, boy. Here's a Magnum 357 revolver. This little baby could take out Dwayne The Rock Johnson from 500 miles away at 42 paces and still have you home by 10. But a gun like that might be too big for a little man like you. Too big. Here's a little cutie of a gun. 32 caliber snub-nosed revolver. Adorable. Isn't that a little cutie? That's darn cute. Now here's a gun that little orphan Annie can get behind. You can stick this little baby in your pants every morning, and by the time you get home, you and your three ex-wives will be wearing an oversized cardigan and making reservations at the Outback Steakhouse for a party of four on a Saturday night in the pouring rain, no less. See that plane up there? Where? That plane. See it? Oh yeah, I see it now. Isn't that a great little gun? How much for this gun, Mr. Magnum? The name's Alex, and the gun is worth 500 bucks and a hearty handshake. Oh man, I spent all my money at the carnival. Shoot. Do you take skee-ball tokens? I sure do. I've only got one, two, six tokens. I'll take it. You got a nickel? I think so. Let me check my shoe. Ah, man, yeah, here's a nickel. Pleasure doing business, kid. Slim, I've got a gun. Now what? Oh, golly, I, I don't know. I'm just old man Slim Whittles. What would Richard say if he were here? He would say, hmm, I know. 
If Richard were here, he'd suggest we go back to my cathedral. Do you have means of transport? I got my dang old dirt bike out back. I used to make deliveries around town with that. You'd have to ride on the handlebars. Our chariot awaits. Next stop, Uncle Thad's Cathedral. And we're back. Welcome back to Two Dudes, One Double Feature. Um, I hope you guys are enjoying that little uh, radio drama. It's it's a lot of fun to to, to kind of work on it. And one of the fun parts, at least on my end, is that um, you're you're more or less like like you're not entirely oblivious to everything, but you know you're you don't really know like all the stuff that's happening. But no, neither do I. But either way, it's always exciting to watch it with you or listen to it with you for the first time and just see your face and you're like, what is happening? <laughs> 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 when I get the lines uh, to record, it, it is really funny. When I when I read things like you know chainsaw circus, you know Idaho potatoes, <laughs> Idaho potatoes, Idaho potatoes. That's my favorite line. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'm just screaming a lot. <laughs> I, I get the crap kicked out of me in these things. Uh, what a what a trooper! What a trooper! <laughs> I try. Now, so we talked about the Christopher Lee version of Dracula from Hammer Horror. We're going to move on to our era in uh, 1992 from a little, little, uh, little known director. You probably, I don't know, do you know who um, Francis, what was his name, Francis Ford Coppola, do you know who he is? Doesn't he sell wine? I think you know what I've I've heard that he sells wine, but his daughter is a director, so he should probably get in the game because his daughter's you know just making movies. You know he should, I'm just saying it's a family it's a family business, folks. But yes, <laughs> yes. In case you couldn't guess it, we are of course talking about the most famous Francis Ford Coppola vampire film, The Conversation. No, I'm kidding. We're not talking about The Conversation. What? The conversation? You never... I'm not prepared. Where's my notes? We never had oh, this God. conversation. Uh, no. We are talking... <laughs> we are talking about the 1992 <laughs> film that's titled Bram Stoker's Dracula, uh, which is a really... It is a really fascinating thing of a movie. Whether you love it, whether you hate it, whether you're just like, what the hell is going on with this thing? It's... <laughs> It's quite a movie, honestly. <laughs> it is quite a movie. Just I, I joke about this, but it's 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 true. This is probably the fifth time I've sat down and watched this entire movie. I normally like I was telling you I normally when I watch it I get to about the Van Helsing part and then like when uh, Anthony Hopkins first shows up and I end up just doing something else or something else comes up and I just I don't finish it from that point, but. Uh, this is the probably the fifth time that I've watched it in its entirety, and my sixth time will probably be I don't know like five years, you know, possibly who knows. Yeah, so my, I just want to talk about because you know obviously you brought in the Hammer Horror, I brought in Bram Stoker's Dracula, and uh, this is this is an adaptation that is um, important to me because uh, one. You know, I, I don't know if I've said this in the show before, but a lot of my, like, movie tastes and stuff were developed because of my dad's 
VHS collection that he left behind once he passed away. So, watching things like Jurassic Park, of course, the Star Wars movies, Indiana Jones, the Universal Monster movies, and American Werewolf in London. Mm -hmm. And one of the most fascinating tapes in his collection, which I'm actually holding right now, I'll post this on the social media later, but this is my dad's VHS copy of Bram Stoker's Dracula. And, um, I mean, I know for a fact that my parents probably had saw this in the theaters back in the 90s because, A, like, Patrick Willems had that video where it was, like, you know, those Sony horror, like, monster movies that were, like, you know, based off of classic, like, literary things like Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Yeah. So it kind of combined, like, the elements of, like, a, fu- a fancy period piece with a monster movie. So definitely that would have appealed to my parents at the time. So, and just like the cover of this thing too, and just seeing the tagline, love never dies. And I also found it weird too, because there was like, I had the universal VHS tape of Dracula. And then I look at this tape and I'm like, wait, Dracula has a mustache in this? What's going on? What? Why is there a stone head with wolves? He has long hair. He has long hair. What? What is happening? What is happening? Why does his hair look like... Um, butt cheeks. <laughs> like, let's. <laughs> he's got this really crazy updo. I kind of like it though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, but I mean, for a while, as a kid, obviously, I did not watch. I did not watch this movie. Um, and actually, for a while, I, I stayed away from my dad's like horror VHS tapes because I was I was too scared of them. Like, I was like, ah, Boris Karloff, and I ran to the other side of the room. You're like, is he gone? I think I've told I think I've told this with like the Batman VHS tape where like yeah. I had like a dream or something where like the Jack Nicholson tape winked at me and I was like screaming like screaming for my life basically so that just that just tells you the kind of person that I I uh I was and uh, still am. Um <laughs> but going back to this movie I think I first watched I first watched this many years ago on tape, you know, cuz I still have a VHS player and so I I do watch some of those movies initially on tape. I was really taken aback by this production. It was really like, cause the other ones, they might have like one big budget element. Like they'll have the makeup job is really good or they'll get a big movie star. This was like one of those horror movies. Like this costs like $40 million to make. Mm-hmm. And this is one of those cases where this movie is definitely style over substance. Like to the max. Every, like oh, yeah. every frame of this movie is dripping with expensive, beautiful looking costumes by uh, Eiko uh, Ishioka. Um, and like the set design is brilliant. You know, the, the makeups that they do for Dracula are brilliant and beautifully done. The practical effects, which we'll get to in a second. It's just like, the, like again, this is one of those movies where it's just like, yeah, there's a lot of weird shit that happens in this movie. But like <laughs> visually speaking, visually speaking, it's it might be one of the most beautiful looking horror movies ever made especially like a mainstream you know movie i would agree with that it's um when was the first time like you were saying like you had the vhs my parents had the vhs for it as well my dad really likes this movie or at least he watches it a lot i I imagine he really likes it it's one of the ones he likes and uh it was definitely it was definitely one of the movies that ushered in for me as a kid the idea of vampires being like my the thing i was most afraid of when it comes to monsters just the idea of someone like coming into your room in the middle of the night while you're sleeping to drink your blood and take your life and like 
it it was horrifying seeing like I did see it as a kid. I'm like, nah, mm-hmm. no, thank you. I don't, <laughs> I don't want that in my life. Um, even like seeing um, uh, Gary Oldman like as like the monster was terrifying. You're like, ah, yeah. <laughs> it's it's it 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 again. It was one of the things that cemented my fear of vampires when I was younger, and I always avoided it. Like any chance I could get, I just was like, I can't, nah, nah, I'm not, I'm not doing that. Um, it wouldn't be till much later on when I was more comfortable with it and more like interested in in what the movie was doing with Dracula because I had read the book and. It's. I don't know if I have anywhere near uh, as personal a connection with this one, um, and I do appreciate a lot that happens in it. I will say it's. It's not necessarily, at least for me, it's not necessarily one of my all-time favorite versions. It's definitely scary, and um, like you're saying, I completely agree. Like the the costume, like the sets and the costumes, even the actors. Like, you know, granted, these weren't necessarily people who were huge stars then, per se. Um, Like, more like kind of budding stars at the time, whereas now we look at them. Like, Keanu Reeves still is still a huge actor. Gary Oldman, now an Academy Award winning actor. Uh, Anthony Hopkins, who's always just been big. Uh, Winona Ryder, who has has always been very well known. All of these, all of these people are still making movies today, and I mean that's something that you can attribute to just Francis Ford Coppola in general is that he kind of helped launch the careers of like so many great, you know, young actors and actresses. And this movie is no different. And what was it? Did did you get to mention like the three the three guys? Oh, that that are like you know the three suitors. <laughs> like, there's a whole like segment of this that's like the Bachelorette. <laughs> But with vampires. (laughs) Like, who's going to get Lucy's Rose today? Is it Billy Campbell, a.k.a. The Rocketeer? Is it Carrie Ellis, a.k.a. Wesley, as you wish? Or is it Richard E. Grant, a.k.a. The Scientist from, from Logan? And the dude from Rise of Skywalker? He's also a great actor. Let's also, I don't want to just dunk on Richard E. Grant. <laughs> no, he is. He is a great actor. I tease. I tease. Because he was, I mean, wasn't he also nominated for an Oscar? Didn't he win? I don't know if he won one. I know. I definitely know he was nominated recently for a movie. And he just seems like a delightful, yeah. he just, like, I follow him on social media. He just seems like a delightful person. You know what? We love you, Richard E. Grant. We do. So going off, like, a huge, like, huge, big cast, you know, and... This is something this is something that it definitely would not happen today. I think that's part of my appreciation for this movie because I think I think about one of our first episodes, The Invisible Man. And I'm not dunking on The Invisible Man at all because it's a great movie. But for me as so- I I would really love to see like a cinematic universe of these monsters where it takes place in like the ye olden days period piece production. It's never going to happen. Period piece production, you know, really like lavish like designs and and all that stuff. And this movie, this movie is like that on, on steroids. Like even like Coppola, like his position on like the costumes, which like I said, are uh, designed by Eiko uh, Ishioka. His, his perspective was the costumes are the sets 
And even though I think the sets are pretty lavish in a lot of areas, the costumes really are where your eyes are drawn to, especially with Dracula. I mean, he's got so... Any other movie would have, like, one iconic look for the character, right? Usually, yes. you, like, you know, we think about Christopher Lee and Bela Lugosi, you know, that it's very iconic. This guy, he's got his red Dracula armor, he's got his weird, like, uh, baboon butt hair, you know, with the red robe. <laughs> baboon but yeah i'm using that <laughs> of course i know you and i love this look where he has the mustache and he has like the gray outfit and the, the coat and everything oh of course there's like some of the like you ever notice like side note do you ever notice in some movies like the best costumes have like one big moment like the cost like even just the costume they use in advertisings for some characters that is like in one scene like beetlejuice just has the striped suit one time at the end of the movie um bruce lee the the iconic yellow like with the black stripes on it that's not even in like his earlier movies right yeah like it's in, like it, it's in like um what's it game of, game death, of death which yeah. he, which he's kind of in but and that became like the iconic look for bruce lee and then uh with this one i would argue that that look with the top hat like the gray top hat with the blue like glasses and that suit was one of the more iconic looks for Gary Oldman really just has one scene. Mm -hmm. Whereas like um, another famous look is, you know, the, the big hair with like the overtly long, like, like a uh, silk red cape robe outfit he wears. Cause the rest of the movie, like he's either in like some other lavish costume or another, or he's uh, a, a wolf bat creature whichever one he's not like a combination but like he 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 he's, he mixes it up which is cool um or uh like he has a more black version with like the top hat and everything but that gray one that gray number that's the one that i like the most i think yeah oh, uh, definitely for sure and i also think about too like even outside of him like i think about lucy's costumes especially when she's um when she is like in the va in vampire mode and they have to exterminate her, basically. And that's like, that's a pretty memorable, that's one of the most memorable images in the mo whole movie, in my mind, uh, when they have to defeat her. Oh, yeah. Did that, that, I mean, I know I'm talking a lot about the production stuff. I'm going to get to the other elements, but it, it, it's just like, visually speaking, this movie is, is so, like, the map, there's like, going to the practical effects now, the practical effects in this movie, there's no CGI in this film. Okay, there's no, they don't use modern techniques. And Coppola actually had his son, Roman Coppola, supervise the special effects work on this movie. So basically, I think their idea was the movie takes place 1897 through most of the scenes, the scenes that aren't in, you know, yeah. that aren't in like the, the flashback sequence in the beginning, which we'll get to that later too. But with, um, with the rest of the, with the movie, they wanted to do special effects that they could do if they were making movies in 1897, because little known thing, there were movies in 1897. It wasn't exactly what you would have thought yeah. of today as the movies, but there were movies nonetheless back in those times. You know, they even allude to that uh, in the movie where they're like, they're, they're going around, like the, like he pulls her, pulls her aside and they're watching those movies. Yeah, it, it's actually kind of incredible. Like there's so many, and I think that's why a lot of this movie, in at least the visual components, have aged pretty well is because everything is so old school and so practical i'm not saying everything looks 100 percent real but it just adds to the quality of the movie like the matte paintings are so gorgeous uh the miniature 
work with some of like the train stuff, the sets, of course. And I was, I love this, the scene where like Jonathan is getting picked up by Dracula in the beginning and you see the arm like sort of like, it looks like it's stretching, you know, it's like stretching, but it looked, but it, and yet it looks like, like the, it's so weird. Like the laws of like physics are like, so and Coppola's even admitted that too, where it's like his intention with this was that if you're around somebody like Dracula, like the laws of reality are not the same. No, they're not. Like, of course, you have the iconic scene where Dracula's like climbing on climbing on the side of the castle or, you, you know, the way Jonathan's like trying to get out. Or even just the scene when like he's exploring the castle and everything like is shifted gravity wise. Yeah. Like there's 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 rats like just casually walking on top of the ceiling or when he picks up a vial the the water's dripping up and not dripping down right there it really is a sense of surrealness or anytime dracula it like goes into or like it goes somewhere or enters into a situation there's this like real like crazy montage type scene where like it's like the camera like super zooms in because it's from his perspective and Everybody feels his presence, and it's illustrated whenever, like, you see, like, Gary Oldman laughing in the sky or something like that, like a floating head in the sky kind of thing, like, um, this, like, dreamy type sequence. Like, when he first shows up in America, like, the, the, they really make it known that he's coming, um, by, you know, it's a lot of thunder and rain, but also, like, uh, Winona Ryder's character, uh, Mina, and Lucy are like, you know, becoming a lot more like sexually alive and lustful because Dracula's presence is coming. And um no, it gets really surreal and dreamlike around his presence. That makes a lot of sense, honestly. But hopping off of that, like briefly, you know, hopping off of that, like we were alluding to earlier, the cast and outside of the production stuff, the best the the thing to take away from this movie is Gary Oldman as Count Dracula. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Best part. For sure. Gary Oldman. He, um... I mean, Gary Oldman in general is just a great actor. So, I mean, he, uh... He, he commits to the performances. And with this one, like... He's clearly... He's... Like like past Dracula's, he, he's clearly a presence. Like, he's... Like, it's not just that he gives a great performance... You know, he almost like he's he's just so alluring and hypnotic when you when you meet him. But one of the things I love about this version of Dracula is is how more well rounded I think he is in his in, in the interpretation of it because he's not just a villain, he's not just a monster. In fact, I don't I'd argue that I almost feel bad for what happens to him at the end of at the end of all this because while he does do monstrous things. His goal at the end of the day is that he lost the love of his life and was alone the rest of his life and cursed to be this creature that has to live off the lifeblood of others. And when he meets Winona Ryder's character, who essentially is a lot like uh, his long lost love, almost like, almost exactly like his long lost love that becomes the driving force for his character in that it almost, again, it almost feels like a love story more than anything else. And, it, and at the end of the day, like for me personally, I felt bad that, you know, it went the way it did. I agree with that. And like the beginning of the movie, like, which is basically, if you imagine like Dracula untold, but you know, good and told in like the span of five minutes. Zinger. T 
Take that, Luke Evans. The whole prologue really paints him as this, like, a sort of a tragic, you know, sort of a tragic uh, hero in in certain respects because he say he's able to save his country from from invasion and and all that. But and how is he rewarded? His wife kills herself, you know, because of she jumps off a cliff. Yeah, she, she jumps off a cliff because of deception and all that. And that was another visual component too. I loved is when he when they're doing like the battle scenes. If you look in the background, there's like the shadow puppets that are mo- that are moving. And so they have like this one like motion that they do, which made me think of like old silent movies, like um, like uh, the Adventures of Prince Ahmed. But yeah, the whole prologue is, is like it really sets him up as this um, as this tragic character. Which he, like you said, he does terrible things. Yeah, you know, he does awful, awful, unspeakable things in this movie. You know, but at the same time, it comes from a place of this dude was wronged really bad. He just wants to be reunited with his, the love of his life, you know. Reunited and it feels so good. <laughs> I won't sing more because I don't want to get copyright striked. Like one of my favorite like scenes involving that love story is where like I think it, on one of his like dinner dates or whatever with Mina, you see like a... You know, it's almost like a rear screen projection or, or optical effect where you see the the image of Elizabetha, his his long lost love in the window and she and she vanishes. Mm-hmm. You know that I love that moment so much. There, there's like, like I said, like the visual component really elevates a lot of this, which um, uh, lead, leads me to the rest of the movie where um, let's talk. Let's talk about Keanu Reeves. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, this is one of the few times I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> but I will say, I, I, I will say before we get into the Keanu thing, one thing that I do want to mention is that, you know, we talk a lot about the visuals and how the visuals and the way that the movie looks enhance things. I'd almost argue, we do say it's style over substance, but I would almost argue that in a lot of ways, similar to what we were talking about with a lot of past, with a, a lot of our past episodes is that this movie is, in a lot of ways, the style is the substance. In a lot of ways, like, you know, the way that Coppola frames things, the way Coppola uses the imagery and the old technology he's using is is what elevates things. And, you know, he, he's using the image more or less to tell the story than the dialogue, which I liked. But I thought I'd just throw that in there. The, uh, the, uh, the yeah, that Keanu Reeves. Um, listen, Keanu Reeves is a, a treasure, He's an icon, he's a legend, he's an amazing human being, he's a great actor, he's a great action star. I always get excited when I see him in movies, except this one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Except this except this one. Like Keanu Reeves in this movie is it just doesn't fit. I think that's it's the biggest thing is that it just feels like the wrong casting choice. It's so out of place. It's funny to think that, you know, back in the day with Keanu, whenever we, especially when we think of movies like Point Break and Bill and Ted, we think of him as like a surfer kind of dude. Whoa, Keanu Reeves, what? You know, that kind of thing. Obviously didn't stick. I think, I think you know, especially with John Wick, like that image was killed profusely. So like, it's almost funny when you watch the new Bill and Ted movie where he's supposed to kind of evoke that again and it doesn't happen at all. Because you're like, he's not that he's not that Keanu anymore. He's so good in the movie, but um, it just like he's he's definitely not like that version of himself anymore. Which you know, again, it worked so well in that new Bill and Ted. But 
in the opposite side of things, uh, in his early days when he is known for that kind of character type, to have him play Jonathan Harker, a British, like, proper, like, almost, like, gentlemanly dude, uh, it just feels so weird. <laughs> and, and, like, his British accent... Again, we're Americans, so we have no say whatsoever as far as I think when it comes to like proper British accents. Especially because, at least for us, it feels like most American accents for Brits tend to work. There's some that definitely don't, but there's some that tend to work. And uh, especially more so than us doing their accent. And so it's just, it's just funny that, you know... It, it's I would I would say that it's not as bad as like say Dick Van Dyke and Mary Poppins, but it's more or less in its own way close as bad, I would say. I would almost say just because the way the movie is, I would say it's worse because maybe objectively you can judge one accent over the other one. Like I don't know, I feel like Dick Van Dyke's just works better within that universe of Mary Poppins. Whereas when you hear it in this one, um, I, and I see... But it's also just so offensive in comparison. Like, when you think of, like, the Dick Van Dyke version, it's it's very offensive, almost. Yeah, but I, my, my other thing is, too, just, like, does it work with the rest of it? And with Keanu, it just doesn't. Like, it, it feels like a complete... He feels like he's coming from a completely different film. Oh, no, I, I completely agree with that. I, but I, I guess I guess just as far as the comparison between the the two bad ones is that I think both of them stick out horribly in their movies. Like watching as much as I like, I've seen Mary Poppins only so many times, but like anytime I've seen it, I'm like, Dick, what are you doing? <laughs> like, I love Dick Van Dyke again, just like Keanu, like Dick Van Dyke's a, a, an icon and a treasure, but what are you doing? Even, I think even Dick Van Dyke was like, they screwed me, man. They told me to do that. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, I'm trying, I'm trying to do this like proper representation of British accent, and they're like, no, 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 talk like this, yeah, governor. This accent is so bad; it has its own subcategory on uh, on the Wikipedia page. That's how bad it does. This accent is. <laughs> it is atrocious. Um, I mean, it's like like top twenty nine worst movie castings and miscasts and all that stuff <laughs> I, I also want to talk about too as far as like castings what was interesting was anthony hopkins as van helsing which completely makes sense you know it make it total totally makes sense as a casting but it's also so interesting to see him how different he is from other van helsings because other van helsings even if they're like the older like more serious scientist character you know who, who knows about vampires they're they might at least have a little bit more of a heart Whereas this guy, he he's just a jerk. Like he's terrible. He's an absolute sociopath. <laughs> he is an absolute. He's an absolute. Like, like there's literally like the one scene I always think of when um when they're like, can we? When he's like, can we go see Lucy's body? He's like, what are you gonna do with it? Oh, nothing. I'm just gonna you know stake it in the heart and cut its head off. That's all. <laughs> like what? <laughs> <laughs> and the way the way he Excuse like me? he will coldly explain all of that too is just like you know any other thing like things like yeah this this is kind of this kind of stinks but we can we can save their soul you know this guy's like we are going to do this I was right it was Dracula I found you I found you Dracula <laughs> <laughs> the best is when he wants food and like <laughs> he's like he's a yelling about and then, and then like um, Billy Campbell's like yo coot and then he just laughs. <laughs> <laughs> he just laughs. It's like ha 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 ha. 
or whatever. <laughs> or like, or like to to like explain his point, he like casually humps him <laughs> at one point, oh and you're like, God. "Why are you picking up the Rocketeer and humping him?" <laughs> Just to prove my point. That's all. I was gonna say it's so funny to go from like the Peter Cushing version, which is so like he's like a genuinely good like person, like like. Almost like you're like this guy's a hero to go to the Anthony Hopkins version, who's still like he's still there to help. It's just, good lord, <laughs> it's like, goodness gracious, he's so good at it though. Yeah, he he is good in this movie. I, I'll say that. I was also thinking about this with um, the horror of Dracula. Is I'm also used to the Bela Lugosi Dracula, where the ending is so anticlimactic. It's just like oh, it just kind of ends. Like they they kill him. Yeah, and it's just like you hear him grunting, going. Ugh! And then he, he dies. Whereas, whereas like, Horror of Dracula, I really liked the way they were able to defeat the Count. I mean, the Count gets defeated. But, like, I love the way that is set up and the way they do that. Like, it's, it really gives us some iconic scenes. And then this this movie, yeah, like, you could say it's maybe a little simple how they kill him. But there's at least, like, an act, like a journey to get there. And there's, like, some buildup. And yeah. it also connects back into, like, the whole reincarnation storyline. And that it ties up. Uh, in a nice, uh, nicely effective way, and I think also like just just like the death scene alone with Mina and and Dracula, I think is really effective. And you know, again, because like ultimately this is a love story. Like for as violent and as and as lustful, we'll probably get to that in a second. How lustful this movie is! Just that 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 small like emotional tender moment before you know before the end, where Dracula just like accepts his death. She pushes that incredibly large, elaborate uh, knife, almost sword, <laughs> that, that Billy Campbell's character had, through it through his chest, chops his head off. But it's it's not without a sense of sadness to it on her part. Absolutely, Nona Ryder loves monsters. I mean, it was it's <laughs> it's Dracula, Ever Scissor Hands, um, Vincent Cassel. You know, she she has a weird, she has a weird affinity for monsters. Actually, what's cool about this movie too is that originally you mentioned Sofia Coppola earlier. Originally, Winona Ryder was supposed to play that part in The Godfather Three. Yeah, and then she dropped out. And later on, you know, she brought Coppola. Coppola didn't write this, but Coppola she brought Coppola the script, and to show that he didn't have any bad like you wouldn't have any bad feelings. He looked at the script and he was like, "Yeah, I want to I want to do this." You know, he has a lot of connections to dracula too as far as like you know watching the movies as a kid reading the book numerous times um you know and one of the other like funny anecdotes that he brought up in the bonus features was there's like the scene where like th like they almost look like they're floating as he's like pulling her away like after they're watching like the movie yeah and he's trying to explain this thing or whatever and she's just kind of laughing she's just like yeah, i already did something like this with like tim <laughs> <laughs> which speaking of which like this is the third the third week in a row that we've talked about a Winona Ryder movie. That's I'm totally fine with that. <laughs> you know, well, you know, if we could just like, because uh, spoiler alert, next week uh, our movies don't feature Winona Ryder, but you know what? We'll just mention her. <laughs> just, just, just out. It's like, by the way, Winona Ryder is not in this, but we like you, Winona. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. Oh, one of the other things I want to mention too, just real quick, the music uh, by uh, Wojciech. Uh, Wojciech um, Kilar mm -hmm. is a, he was a Polish composer. He passed away a few years ago, but 
his music in this is really good. And I wish there was like a new like remastered version of the soundtrack out there or whatever because it's beautiful. Like like there like there's there's got like the haunting like menacing thing dun dun dun. dun. And, you know, or or like the love theme is really nice uh, for Dracula and Mina. Um, really, really great. Score. The intense violin use is is fantastic. I like. I like. I like. Like the, mm, mm, like it's it's like he plays that violin hard. <laughs> and going back to the Lugosi Dracula, like for me, like Dracula, I always think of Swan Lake. Mm-hmm. But with this this movie, it's able to create like a really like its own icon iconic score in its own right. You know, I would, I would, I would definitely agree with that. Um, but I think when it comes to these two versions of Dracula, I mean, in a lot of ways, like you know, like we've talked about, there's a million, there's a million almost versions of Dracula. There's the Bela Lugosi, uh, Nosferatu, which is like a, a technically like an un, uh, you Un-au- know, unauthorized, unauthorized. Yeah, thank you, uh, an unauthorized version of Dracula. There was the Ger- uh, Gerard Butler version uh, from like two, I think two thousand because it's called Dracula two thousand. So <laughs> that makes sense. And uh, you know, years later, we would get Dracula on Penny Dreadful and Dracula in the Van Helsing movie. We'd get Frank Langella, uh, Luke Evans uh, that we mentioned his version um uh, yeah uh, <laughs> did you mention castlevania no um because uh we there is the whole like just the video game series but also um the the recent animated show um which again the whole the the whole warren ellis thing if you know what i'm talking about it's it's not good but um but i i like that version of dracula a lot though i'll say that I liked it enough to where I have the I have the Funko Pop of it. I'm I'm staring at it right now, actually. It's it's good. It's a good version of Dracula. It's just again the unfortunate connection yep. and work from mm-hmm. Warren Ellis. But but moving away from that, um, there's a million different versions of Dracula. But I think the reason you and I picked these two versions is because they they're they're special to us specifically. Yes. You know, in some way, like I know I know you're a massive fan of the the bram stoker version and i'm a massive fan of the the hammer version and in a lot of ways these versions um stand out even just amongst the pack of other versions of dracula for for how they are and for what they do so in all, in all honesty these are probably some of the more like nothing against like any other version but these are probably some of the more special versions of dracula that, that are out there i think i i think they're very I think they're very unique as far as Dracula adaptations yes. are concerned. Like the way, you know, the way that the Hammer reorients the story, but also just the inclusion, you know, of the of sexuality and violence. And then this movie, I mean, when you have somebody like Francis Ford Coppola, like it's not often that you get like such a high profile, like direct, like Francis Ford Coppola directed a Dracula movie. That's wild. That's think about that. Like that is insane. Like, can you imagine? Like, suddenly you had like an announcement. Like, um, who who would be who would somebody like be today? Like, um, like David Fincher did a Frankenstein movie. David Fincher directs Frankenstein, or you know, Martin Scorsese does Jekyll and Hyde. Oh my God, can that happen, dude? That would be <laughs> wild. Oh my God, I would so I would be so down for that. Freaking like 
I don't even care. Just have Leo turn into to Robert Daddy or not Robert Daddy Jr. or Robert Daddy Jr. That'd be even great as well. <laughs> <laughs> but like, I was gonna say Robert De Niro just to like keep with that consistency that Scorsese likes. But you know what? Robert Downey Jr. I'm gonna just say it right now. Robert Downey Jr. Jekyll and Hyde. Martin Scorsese. But yeah, it's just, they're both they're both really. Um, I th- I think they're some of the most iconic versions. I mean, and that's even with like Bela Lugosi and Nosferatu existing both exceptionally iconic characters but you know christopher lee is iconic of course as i said like all of gary oldman's outfits are iconic oh for sure for sure his outfits are amazing um i'm just looking at at everything that's here did we talk about like the the sexual stuff or do we kind of did we kind of just oh you know what yeah let's get into that so obviously like with the hammer one you know it kind of introduced this you know somewhat more explicit element of sex in these monster movies and then uh this movie takes it uh, like it takes it to a whole other level (laughs) (laughs) this if 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 the sin of lust was represented in any movie i look no further than bram stoker's dracula because this this is a lustful movie there's Oh my god, there's so many fake nipples yeah. in this movie. <laughs> I can think, like everybody has a fake nipple and it's bleeding or something is something is happening with it. Like Keanu Reeves has a fake nipple that bleeds. Gary Oldman has a fake nipple that bleeds. I'm surprised that um Anthony Hopkins didn't get it. I think one. Anthony Hopkins probably requested one, but then then uh uh it was not in the budget to uh to put that. Like listen, we've already paid for Keanu and Gary. I don't I'm sorry. What? <laughs> fine fine be like that francis uh one of the other big elements to one of the other th- scenes in the movie we were talking about um was when mina is looking at like her copy of arabian nights and you have like the explicit you know little like drawings and uh images that are in that book like yeah uh or just just how how lucy is portrayed in this um compared to other versions Lucy is again. You know, we we talk about like uh, how Sarah Jessica Parker was was horny in uh, Hocus Pocus. Lucy kicks her butt in that department. <laughs> like, <laughs> like holy crap! Like literally, one of the first things she says to any like any any like of the male characters in the movie is uh, she goes up to that uh, Billy Campbell's character Quincy. Was it Quincy Morris? Uh huh. Um, and she's like, "It's so big." Can I touch it? Your knife? <laughs> and you're like, oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> and this, and then like it just, it just added to it that his knife is actually like huge. <laughs> like I've never seen one so big before. <laughs> that thing looked like a sword. It was like, dang. <laughs> oh my god! And like she, she's she literally like plays. All three of like the suitors, like that's what I was like talking about. Like it's like the Bachelorette. She's literally like, "All right, it's your turn to have a night now." <laughs> or no, it's your turn. <laughs> oh, man, she's oh my god, and and even just the scenes when she's like in bed after being like attacked by Dracula, she like she's either like partially naked and writhing or. She's fully naked writhing. It's just, she's, she is literally like, and she's always wearing like red, like, like, like a mesh, like sheer red 
So, like, it almost adds to, like, the passionate aspect to it all, like, from a costume standpoint. And adding to, like, blood, like, all the scenes where blood is, like, exploding or pouring out of things, you know, like, I, I'm just like, what is going on? <laughs> it's, it's, it's literally almost like, especially just for, like, the sexual aspect of it. There's a lot, like, I'm surprised there wasn't, like, I'm sure, I wonder if Francis wanted to, if Francis Ford Coppola wanted to get, um, a bleeding, like, because there's that scene when, uh, uh, <laughs> when Monica Bellucci, I think it was Monica Bellucci's character, when, like, all the brides are, like, devouring Keanu Reeves, and, like, she, like, un- unbuckles his pants and then goes straight for it, is his junk. <laughs> like, I'm, I wonder if they're, like, could we, could we make a prosthetic one that bleeds? And they're, like... No. <laughs> no, you cannot. <laughs> like, do you want people to see this movie? No. And Fred's like, you know, maybe I, I, they don't have to see it. This is just for me. Like, I don't care. <laughs> you got your bleeding, b- pulsating nipple. You don't need. You don't need a. You don't need a penis to do that. So, but I feel like there was some point he had to have thought of it. But yeah, this movie, <laughs> this movie, for better or for worse, uh, I think you'll never forget it once you see it. You know, that's the that's the no. beauty with this. You, I, I remember so many shots, like just even like the shots, just his eyes in the sky. You know, or just him laughing off in the distance or something. Just like uh, when uh, when uh, Keanu Reeves is on the train going to the castle, and you just see like the eyes in the sky, just you know, just staring at him, and you're like, Keanu, don't go, go home, hang out with your wife, your fiance, whatever. Go back. It's not worth it. Yeah. For, for sure, dude. <laughs> uh, but I guess, like, with, with, with both of these, like, we were talking about, like, how these adaptations, what these adaptations mean to us. I think, ultimately, an adaptation of, like, these are both adaptations of the same book. And there's so many Draculas that are, that have a lot of similarities and things. Like, some stories, you know, take more inspiration with the Vlad the Impaler stuff. Like, this movie really doubles down on that. Or some yes. will amp up like the monstrous side of Dracula, you know, like how Christopher Lee sort of portrays the character in horror of Dracula. And then, you know, you, some versions might just show off like the plague or like the disgusting elements like Nosferatu. Lugosi is like the charm, like the, the foreign charmer coming into a new world and all of that kind of stuff. It wants to be a Marvel movie. Or the Luke Evans version. It's just Luke Evans. <laughs> it's gotta be Marvel. Make my Marvel. It's got to be a big budget action <laughs> movie. Oh my gosh! But <laughs> I was so glad that we we chose these two movies. And this is my proposition for you that I was going to say to you, but I'm going to say it on air now. All right, we should do a set of Dracula adaptations every October. I feel like the, I feel like there's enough. Yeah, yeah. I feel like there's enough versions that we could probably get away with that and be fine. Yeah. No, yeah, I'd be down. As long as long as at some point, just just to have fun with it, we probably should talk about Dracula Untold. Oh, I'd be fine with that. I'd be fine with <laughs> just, revisiting it. Sure. Just like, just like so. There's that scene where uh, Dominic Cooper shows up. <laughs> Charles dances in this. No. Out. <laughs> uh, I know what kills him: a toilet and a crossbow. Man, and I was reading one of my one of my letters the other day. That somebody mentioned that their favorite adaptation was 
Dracula Untold, and I was just like, oh. "Listen, that co- cool for you, but you could watch that on your own." Like Brian, really, <laughs> really Brian? Oh, of course, of course, it was Brian. Of course, it makes perfect sense. Yes. With that said, I was really glad to do this episode, folks. What is your favorite adaptation of Dracula? What is your least favorite adaptation of Dracula? Or, like, what what do you want to see in a Dracula movie? Like, what haven't they done yet that you want to see? Do you want to see him just, like, sitting in an armchair, like, like a domesticated Dracula? Just like, oh, hi, honey. Like, he's got, like, his pipe that's got, that's got like, blood instead of tobacco, and he just... But, um, there's, I'm sure there's something that they haven't done that you could do. Yes. Yes. I mean, there's always, there's always something I'm excited. I mean, we, there was that B, like the BBC Netflix one that came out. Yeah. I actually really liked that. Yeah. That had some, that had some interesting, interesting stuff. You know, I, I, I hate that. I for just for, I just remembered it now. It came out this year, which is the craziest thing. It came out in January. Wow. That that's weird. It when came, things were okay. It came out in the before time. Holy cow. Oh, Oh, oh man. man! Anyway, folks, uh, <laughs> check us out on our social medias: Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We each have a letterbox and each have a YouTube channel. We constantly review movies there. Richard giving much more thoughtful reviews than I just make jokes. Um, yeah, I make jokes every now and then. You do, you do, but I, I feel like my 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 review of this was literally you all coat. <laughs> <laughs> and my review, but and my review of this was. This is the fifth time I've seen this. Maybe the sixth time will come soon. I don't know. (laughs) Anyway, as always, this was a lot of fun to record. Uh, Check you guys out next week. Have a good night, everyone. Listen to them. The dudes of the night, what sweet podcasts they make. An aphrodisiac of the self worth crossing oceans of time to enjoy. And what musicians was ever so great as John and Kenny Armstrong, whose melodies flow through this podcast. Music made vibrant with Tex Ritter and the Buttersweets. The victories of those are but a tale to continue. The episode regarding All Hallows' Eve. Join them, won't you? Enter freely of your own will and leave some of the happiness you bring. You old coot!